Hey, folks, and welcome to this week's podcast. Our guest is Dave Robinson, uh, a real raconteur uh, um, legend in the music business. He's done a million things, and I guess he's mostly known for being one of the founders of Stiff Records, certainly a huge link in the chain of the history of uh, the music business and rock and roll that uh, changed the way things are done that I think we're still feeling now. So, interesting guy, interesting talk. This was a two-hour chat that we had. As, uh, we, I've cut it down to about 90 minutes, which is still quite a bit longer than we usually get on this uh, program. So, uh, bear with it. I think you'll find it very interesting, super interesting guy. He's working on a new project, a band called Hardwick Circus. And uh, their new record comes out soon, so keep your ears peeled for that. Email me, michaelswfmu.org, and that's all you need to know. It's me and the great Dave Robinson. Good morning, Dave Robinson. You were, were you born in Dublin, is that right? That's right, yeah. Born in Dublin uh, in the 40s, and... uh... Like everybody else, I, uh, you know, at some point one has to get to England. That's the, that's the <laughs> history of Irish people who plan to try and do something. Was, was your folks musical? Were folks into music in your house when you were a little kid? They were, uh, remarkably, they were the uh, United Kingdom amateur ballroom dancing champions. The music was uh, strict tempo kind of uh, dance uh, band. There's a gentleman in England who very famous in the 30s, a guy called Victor Sylvester. And he, uh, he, he was, my father uh, swore around his tempo. When I, when I used to play Chuck Berry, he didn't like it at all. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're born in the 1940s, do you remember the absolute first moment that you heard some kind of music that wasn't that it wasn't dance music was it skiffle was it some elvis or, or bill haley what was it i had a i had a friend and he had a record player uh my my father didn't so uh, the music i heard the beginning was i think it was kind of ricky nelson it might have been but uh my my cousin had what is known in ireland as a carnival same word in america but Traveling, traveling uh, show, traveling fair with dodgem cars and rides, you know, and it uh, went around Ireland on a regular basis. And I loved going to it. And I was usually given the music to oversee on my stays there. And because they were playing 78s, you had to uh, change them every three, three and a half minutes. And so Fats Domino, Chuck Berry, uh, Elvis, uh, Presley, obviously, and and of and several others of that ilk at that period. Perfect. So I read I read something in your uh, notes that you were involved in starting a beat club in Ireland called Sound City. So how old were you when this happened? What exactly is a beat club, and what was live music like before beat clubs? Well, in Ireland, you know, the Catholic Church had a lot to do with everything. And Irish men and women were never encouraged. There always seemed to be some kind of problem in men and women feeling free enough to uh, converse on uh, many subjects. I noticed this particularly because uh, the beat club I opened was when I was about 20. And the reason it's called a beat club was the Irish had very big ballrooms in the country. They had very big sheds 
they used to go to in the rural part of Ireland. And bands were called show bands, and they were about seven or eight pieces. And every major town, every medium town, had their own show band. And, and each show band specialised perhaps in interesting music. For example, a, a group from Newry in Northern Ireland, they loved the Beach Boys and they sang Beach Boy, boy harmonies very well as, as well. So they did a lot of Beach Boy songs in their set, but they would also do the chart the covers of the charts. They would do some country and Western because Ireland was very keen on that kind of music. And uh, nothing original. That, that, that was always uh, something I, I felt people should do. And of course, when the Beatles came in, they tried. But uh, every, every weekend, these huge sheds and ballrooms around Ireland would have men and women men on one side and women on the other side of these very large halls. And um, the bands had set up a system, the show bands had a system so the men and women didn't have to talk to one another. They would uh, play a set of three songs, uh, Foxtrot, three songs that were a waltz, or three songs that were a quick step. And they played uh, everybody um, ballroom danced. It was, it was a culture in Ireland. Everybody could do some version of ballroom dancing. So the band would say, okay, we'll now have a, a set of uh, slow foxtrots, which meant the men and women get very close. And, and the three songs would happen without the public talking to one another. And at the end of the third song, the show band would say, that's all for now, which meant that you would part still not wishing. You might say thank you, but not wishing to have a conversation. But once an hour or so, or once an hour and a half, they would do a lady's choice. Uh, and that would mean that uh, the gentleman would find out whether they were getting close to something. Uh, the parish priest regularly would attend and, get, and, and uh, irritate everybody by watching what everybody was doing. And the, the church had a very big grip on the Irish, and particularly the rural Irish. So a beat club... Everybody in the cities got together in tennis clubs, not because they played tennis, but because the tennis club was a small version of the very big ballrooms. And the four-piece or five-piece uh, small band would play very similar, maybe not so much country and western, but it was very similar material. And uh, a remarkable phenomena, I always uh, tell people, and they are amused by the fact that the, the show band would play for four hours right through. And uh, halfway through, four of them would leave the stage to have their dinner in the back room. And the other people would play, would swap instruments and play, and then they'd, they would reverse uh, courses. So a beat uh, club was what I'd seen in England. You know, the two eyes, the kind of stuff that was a bit hipper, seemed a bit hipper. And it seemed to have some original material. And people were playing stuff from America, uh, Louisiana, New Orleans. Uh, Little Richard was popular, Chuck Berry. And all those uh, things I played in the carnival were um, played, uh, played by uh, four-piece bands mainly. So that, that's how it worked. And that's how the music, for me, started. Hmm. Is there still, if you go to Ireland now, is there some 
um, link to that ballroom dancing, or is that lost? I believe there's a little link, but not a lot. Uh, people went through the um, the jiving, the the rock and roll kind of dancing. That that became popular. So instead of a quick step uh, ballroom dancing, people had watched uh, Rock Around the Clock and The Girl Can't Help It, and so they had come on a bit with their dancing techniques. But that's that's not happening now. It. it uh, when we opened the club, it, we we then quickly were cloned by about 20 people. So 20 clubs <laughs> opened, <laughs> and um, you know we had a great uh, we had a great initial uh, period, but then it uh, it it uh, declined into, and now we're in digital music. Although Ireland still has a great affection for traditional Irish music and acoustic music, music played by people. Uh, as against uh, computers or machines. So there's, there's still a very musical people singing a very big part of country and city life. Hmm. Uh, at some point, you fell into photography. You're still a teenager, I believe, and you're taking photographs of people in clubs and you'd sell them copies or people on vacations. Uh, somehow, you ended up photographing the Beatles. Now, I've read this in different ways about you a million times, but I need this broken down in in much more detail. Was this an organized session? Was it some live photos? What happened to the photos? Where did they appear? Can we see them? Do you still have the negatives? It was a magazine. Uh, there was two magazines I worked for. One I can remember very well called Rave Magazine, and the other I think was called Pop. Pop. So there were two magazines in the early 60s, and I worked for both of them. So the the Beatles came about because I was sent to Liverpool. Liverpool was was starting to be noticed to musically uh, before the Beatles uh, came to bring a, a incredible focus on Liverpool. So I, I was sent to Liverpool to do about nine bands. And the Beatles were one of the eight or nine bands that I photographed that I had a list uh, from the magazine. And I went to the cavern at lunchtime. And it it was, you know, there was quite a few people. It wasn't by any means completely packed. And uh, the Beatles were one of the bands that I did. I can't say that I've particularly noticed the music being any different to some of the other bands at the time. I was busy looking through the viewfinder and getting on to the next gig, so to speak. Three or four of the bands, I mean, looking back, were doing the same material. I think Long Tall Sally was a song, but four or five bands did several songs that other bands did. There was a kind of rock and roll, Southern American kind of flavor to it all. All guitars, there weren't any saxes or anything. So the Beatles you know, passed me by. I remember Paul McCarthy because he was very friendly and very keen to get the photograph of his band. So he was a little, uh, uh, a little organizing. I don't remember John at all. I, I saw him, took a picture of him, but I wasn't aware of him. He didn't speak to me. So the band was a band live and then a photograph of them together in the dressing room and they were the pictures i didn't do anything with the fo- with the negatives the, j- the job entailed me writing down the left to right position that was a very important thing the get, getting the correct names of each band in my photograph left to right and i sent the reels of film 
uh, I handed them into the office in London when I got back, and uh, they used them as they wish. I did several of these kind of jobs. I also did, uh, I went to Newcastle to do a similar outing, and to my mind now, remarkably, there were several of the same songs being played by beat, what they called beat groups at that time. So are these pictures of the Beatles included in books that we find now? Do you see them around? I haven't really looked for them, but I haven't seen any live. There's very few, I have not seen a lot of live pictures from the cavern. I do occasionally look for that one. Mm. Uh, eventually, I managed bands that went and played in the cavern in the later years. But the funny thing about shots of the Beatles around that time is I often look at them and think, did I take that? <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, and, and, and a lot of other bands that I took in the same way because they're kind of a, a blur. The, the 60s got to be very exciting. <laughs> uh, it was a bit of a blur. Um, yeah, it was great. And I have a, a brief relationship with Paul McCartney since, and we talked about that. You know, I mean, we didn't really remember each other, but... Um, he didn't remember me so much, but I've had a few things to do with him. Lovely guy and a genuine person. And I've uh, been in touch with him four or five times in my career where he was helpful. Hmm. Uh, so at what point, what is the the thing that happens where you think to yourself, well, maybe I can, you know, make a living because for the rest of your career, you're road managing and managing and running labels and everything to do with music. What is the thing that got you started down that road? Well, uh, taking pictures of the show bands, which was, became a lot of my business, uh, the magazine called Spotlight in Ireland, uh, photographed the, the show bands. And I became their, their man of photography. And... Um, uh, the bands always wanted promotional pictures, so I, they would then employ me to do a session, so to speak. I would then be paid a fee, and they would then want a lot of prints of various pictures. For a while, the show bands didn't really know about reproduction, so they actually wanted a, a, a glossy print, or they wanted thousands of glossy prints or hundreds. And I had two young girls working a heating machine to turn out Lots and lots of prints. Uh, as a result, I was making quite a, quite a living. And from there, I went to uh, work for a, a magazine company that had 40 magazines. And so I could be doing uh, some fashion shots in the morning, but they also had bike mags and various other mags. One was a veterinary mag. So uh, I could, in the afternoon, I could be working with uh, uh, taking pictures of a vet whose arm might be up the back of a, a cow, for example. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so it was a very good experience. And then I had all the bands. So I, I was actually making a very good living, uh, and it was cash. The, the, other, the other interesting thing about show bands is that at the end of the evening, uh, I noticed that the head of the show band, uh, you know, at 12 o'clock, would sit down with the promoter of the large ballroom and they would put down a figure that they would both agree to, which was a lot less than the actual numbers of the people who had come to the dance. That was for the tax, the Irish tax system. And they would both uh, be able to say the same, the same number on any given night. So mm. 3,000 people will be there. 
and they'd have 350, for example, that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, so at, at a certain point, you roomed with Van Morrison and briefly managed him. I consider him super talented and also a super handful, to be polite. Uh, was he always a super handful? Yes, yes, he was. He, he Michael, I, in Ireland, as you know, you know the, the different uh, religious uh, situations of mm-hmm. Protestant and Catholic have always have been there for, uh, you know, for uh, 400, 500 years, and people have been arguing that. The north of Ireland it, it was um, in a, in a, a situation in 1918 or thereabouts. A treaty was arranged where the north of Ireland would stay uh, with the UK, and the rest of Ireland would then gradually become a republic over a period of years. So it's a very interesting thing. Van Morrison was very Northern Irish. Northern Irish people have a kind of a rather gruff kind of different manner to the Republic people. The Republic people seem to drink a lot, and they're very friendly as a result. Uh, and, they, and they're very chummy. They're very, you know, people will talk to each other in a bar, and they will get into life stories quite quickly. Northern Irish was a bit more suspicious, <laughs> and Van was one of those. I, I met Van through a band that I managed around that period. A group from Northern Ireland who had worked in England wanted to come to Dublin, and one of them came over and, and uh, approached me with a view to getting, gaining a manager. And I wasn't really into I didn't know the idea of management. I, I Obviously, as a club proprietor and negotiator with the groups, I was obviously, some of them had managers and some of them just didn't. But I, I found it easier to deal with the ones who didn't have managers. So a group called The People came over from, uh, they were working around Blackpool in England and came to Dublin and came to the club and wanted to uh, play. And that was fine. I, I heard them in rehearsal and thought this was very good. And they were based around Van Morrison and knew him. And one interesting day, uh, I was up with them in in Belfast, and they took me around to Van's house, which is a small row of terraced houses, one-story kind of terraced houses. He didn't talk a lot. He didn't seem to have any interest in talking to me particularly, but he had a great record collection that I had never seen before. There was a lot of material that I had not uh, seen, and I thought I knew a bit about music at the time. I also photographed him for Rave magazine. Them were a very interesting band because they were getting thirty pounds a week. Now that was untold a luxury. Most bands struggled to, you know, to have enough to eat uh, as long as they had enough petrol to get their van to the next gig. Uh, that's all anybody seemed to care about. But them were notorious for the fact that they actually, their manager gave them an amount every week. So they were seen as very, very wealthy. Van, it seems, discovered, that's what he told me, he discovered that uh, under the agreement that they have, all these bands had two-page agreements. They were all in standard form, and it gave the rights of the manager to collect all the money on their behalf. What he did with it, it didn't specify, but he could collect it. So... Their manager had been picking up, you know, publishing and any other amount of money. And and he had been using that to pay the band £30. And Van discovered that essentially 
as he was the only writer in the group, he essentially took the took the attitude that it was his money that was paying the rest of the band and himself. But he didn't count that. So when he heard that, he immediately uh, decided to leave his management and leave his band and go home to Belfast. And he didn't enjoy Belfast uh, going home to because it's a funny town, like a lot of towns. You go home and, and you have been famous and now you're not famous because you're man- the band have broken up. And, uh, you know, the Belfast people thought that was kind of humorous. Their, their idea of humor did not appeal to Van. So he came to Dublin because he heard this club was going in Dublin. And he arrived just with his harmonica and a, and a small weekend uh, bag case and turned up and said, uh, you know, he found me there. So we actually knew each other from the couple of photographic sessions we had performed in. And he said, you know, I'm looking for a manager. I'm looking for a new band. I'm looking. And so I I said, well, you know, I, I'm not into management. I don't know how that works. But if you're stuck for a place to stay, uh, you could share my flat. I had I had a couple of bedrooms in the flat. So he came to stay with me as a result. But he was a, a terrible flatmate. <laughs> he, he, he got rid of pretty much. Uh, I mean, I think he's a genius as well. I'm a huge fan. But uh, he got rid of all the girlfriends and social life around me gradually. He had some very bad habits, but no small talk. He didn't like people talking about anything except maybe music or, or musical instruments or something to do with music. And so... Bert Burns at that time was, was ringing him, and he gave me the phone on a couple of occasions. I didn't know Bert, but I was aware that he was, uh, he'd was he written, I think, Here Come the Night, and Baby, oh, Baby, Please Don't Go. One of those two were two songs I really liked from them. So Van was giving me the phone. He didn't want to talk to him particularly. And I said, you know, why? You know, I've got nothing to do with this. Van would get up with bands in the club now and they'd kind of pay me back a bit, seemingly. Of course, when Van played with them on harmonica, the bands would be much better than they were. They would kind of zip up a gear or two. I noticed uh, that, his ability to bring people along with him musically. So Bert uh, had, you know, he's telling me he had an apartment for him to go to. He was going to give him advances. He was going to support him. And and he was going to write material with him and for him. And, uh, you know, I said to Van, look, there's nothing here in Dublin. You should go. You should, why why not? Go go and try that. And he, eventually he decided there was nothing much in Dublin anyway going on. And he, um, he decided to go. And he did, uh, to give him his due, he asked me to go with him. But I, I knew by now... <laughs> that Van didn't take prisoners very, very well. He wasn't, he wasn't into passengers. And so uh, I declined and I uh, didn't see him then for, for quite a number of years. Um, uh, but, I, you know, I constantly read about him and, and looked, looked at him as a fan. So that was an interesting uh, bit, the, the Van's uh, period. Well, and I guess he went to New York and made Brown Eyed Girl and then the rest is history. So He did. Yeah, yeah. he did. 
So just to stay with this topic for a second, so uh, around that time, late 60s, early 70s, Irishman goes to London. Is there any prejudice that comes with that, or was that all cool? Well, well, well no, there was a, it was a very difficult thing. The early 60s, you, uh, much to my amazement, because it never occurred to me and nobody had prepared me for it, if you were wanting to get a room, which was what people did, they would go to news agents, and the news agent would have a list, would have cards in the window, the room to let for, you know, a professional gentleman. But it would say, no Irish, no blacks, or no dogs. And it, it amazed me. I, I had not been prepared. Nobody had mentioned this before. And I could easily assume an English accent, you know, but obviously if I was black or a dog, I was stuck, you know, so. <laughs> How late uh, did this continue? How long did things like that go on? I was renting accommodation in London till 66, 67. To my knowledge, it, it was like that up to, say, definitely 1965, 66. Yeah. And I didn't always, they were not always the term, but... No Blacks, No Irish was a regular one. The dogs every now and then was added. I don't know why. But lots of Irish people talk about that and talk about that period and talk about how they wanted to try and get their foot into the London or English situation. And uh, that, that was there. That was in the shop window. But I would put on a posh English accent in every <laughs> event <laughs> to uh, circumvent uh, what was happening. Mm. Interesting. Uh, you started road managing quite a bit. There's uh, folks can we're, we can't cover every second of your career, and I wish we could. But you started road managing lots of bands, lots of bands we've heard of, uh, including in the U.S. Uh, and it seems to me, just from talking to you, from reading about you, that you were a natural at understanding when a deal was going down all sides of that deal and i'm going to assume that was what made you a natural uh at at doing that uh so you worked with jimmy hendrix was he easy to work with yeah he, he was uh, very easy i mean the transition from being a photographer and club owner because i had two partners in the club in dublin uh, I decided to go back into photography because of, I was missing the large income that I had had from the uh, photography. So I went back to London, got a job, uh, and did very long overtime hours, which you could do at that time. And if you're Irish, you got your tax back. After six months, if you returned to Ireland, you could apply to the tax man in England, and he, he would give you your tax back. Uh, it was an arrangement between Ireland and England that, of course, a lot of Irish people took advantage of because they, they would get a, they would write from home in Ireland, but really they'd be in England. So the money, the money would arrive back, and they would actually be working at some different job. So it was very, very well, you know, orchestrated. Every everybody did this. So one day, the uh, the people who I had left in Dublin because I couldn't do any more with them, the Dublin ceiling to a musical career for a, a, a beat group, a four-piece band, was very uh, low. And when you got to it, that was as far as you could really get. There was no record companies there. There was no anything. So you had to go to England. So this uh, band, they were called The People. Uh, 
interesting enough, Henry McCulloch was the guitar player. And Henry, uh, you may know, was in the Grease Band and also in Wings. Right. Uh, eventually, eventually. So while he was in this uh, Northern Irish band, uh, they came and squatted in my flat. And I got evicted because, of course, musicians will never be quiet and will always be making noise in the middle of the night. So my landlady... Uh, said, you know, it's in your terms of your thing that you can't have sub, sublet or whatever. So I got thrown out. Uh, and for a brief period, had to live with the band in their van, which was very uncomfortable. So I got three shows for them. And uh, one of the shows was uh, at that time, uh, 1967, the, um, the kind of Haight-Ashbury kind of underground music, Grateful Dead, all that, all that uh, music from the West Coast was becoming quite, quite the thing. And so uh, a lot of people taking marijuana <laughs> and going to clubs that, uh, with uh, bubbles on the wall and light shows, et cetera, et cetera. So the show that I managed to get uh, for the band, The People, was a show at uh, one of these events. And uh, Pokal Harum were, were the headliner. Uh, and those of several other bands. It turned out that we weren't allowed to go on till four in the morning, at which time the um, the crowd was asleep. Well, the crowd <laughs> had <laughs> had you know the, there was just, there was about uh, not half, maybe a quarter of the original people in this uh, club. So at four o'clock in the morning, my band I have to wake them up <laughs> and get them in there and get them going. And they had a really good effect. Everyone was asleep, but but the music, they're loud and, the, uh, you know, very like them, very like a them band playing that kind of R&B stuff, rhythm and blues. And uh, they had a very good effect. And, and when they finished, several of the crowd who seemed to have university gigs or things were offering me work at quite good rates. And I'm busy writing it all down. And this guy kept saying to me, you should talk to me first. You should talk to me first. And I said, yeah, yeah, I'll get to you. Just let me write, you know, and I'm writing away. The promoter at this point passed me by and he said, Dave, I should talk to this guy. That's Jimi Hendrix's manager. So, of course, I changed tack rather suddenly. And, uh, and so, so we had a conversation. It turned out that he wasn't really interested in the talent of the band. He, he was interested that they could play. But his main wish was he owned three clubs in Mallorca off the coast of Spain, very popular at that time in the 60s. And, he, and the Spanish government and the British government had one of their never-ending arguments over Gibraltar. The Spanish wanted it back, and the English didn't want to part with it. So the Spanish had... had uh, stopped all English work permits so in order to, uh, you know, uh, negotiate. And this guy was upset, Mike Jeffries, his name. He was upset because he had three clubs and he'd been making a lot of money in the summer and he had no music to put it in because that was how the clubs worked. So he, you know, he said, it is an Irish band, right? And I said, yeah, yeah, de no, definitely. What I didn't tell him, of course, is that, you know, they had UK passports and were absolutely useless for what he had in mind. So I rushed to uh, Southern Ireland where 
as luck would, it takes about, the, the Irish are always a bit slow in the civil servant, particularly at that time. And it takes about, you know, three or four months to get a, because first of all, I had to establish that they were Irish, even though Northern Irish, the Irish accepted that that was Irish. And so the band didn't want to get Irish passports, a Republic Irish passports, because they said if anyone found out, they'd get killed. So I said, don't tell anybody. And meanwhile, meanwhile, I'm, uh, I found a girlfriend who was working in the civil servant in the visa department, and she was able to help me. Luckily, I had, we had parted on good terms. And so she got me uh, passports for them. I had an Irish passport in, uh, in a week, a week or nine or 10 days. So I could report back to Mr. Jeffries that I had the band and we were ready to move, leave. If he would part with some uh, money, I'd get going. So off we went to Mallorca, and it was fantastic. We had a great time. The band played very well. People talk about the Beatles in Hamburg and, and the difference between the Beatles prior to Hamburg and afterwards, because they were playing four, four or five sets a night with a lot of uh, kind of amphetamines and things to make get them through. Uh, but they, it really improved their music. And so... Uh, same the same situation. The people were playing in three clubs, six sets a night, and everything was great. It was and it was a real holiday atmosphere. Mallorca was all the European uh, young Europeans would go down there for a couple of weeks. So it was a very exciting time. So Chas Chandler turned up at this time. I was aware I had heard that Mike had a partner and that they'd signed this guy Jimmy Hendrix. So. Uh, Chaz turned up for a holiday in Mallorca and, you know, he's the kind of guy who will always go to the music. And so he came to the club and he saw my band, the people playing. And he said to me, Dave, they're really good. You know, I really quite like this. You know, I might want to do something further. What do you think? And I said, oh, great, Chaz, just marvelous. So Chaz was the musical half of the partnership. Mike Jeffries was the money. So we got back from Mallorca, and I did spend three days in a Spanish jail, which is because I had obviously been getting, as the manager, I'd been scoring a few, uh, a few, <laughs> a few small bags of grass or something at the time. And uh, the Guard of Seville, uh, Franco was, was running Spain still at that time, and the Guard of Seville had been uh, filming it. So they picked up everybody who had been going to this South African's house. And it was a very difficult time. Um, everybody was queer. There were 35 of us in a very small cell with a big hole in the floor uh, as a latrine. Very unpleasant circumstances. And, uh, you know, my turn to be questioned came on the third day because people were being, uh, would leave and they would not come back. So I thought, you know, what what is happening? What how can I get out of this? This is this is a difficult situation. Now the Irish passport uh, ha, is half in Gaelic, so I decided I had in school I had learned Gaelic at a very young age. Uh, not that I was fluent in any way, I had forgotten most of it. But I decided I could only speak Gaelic, and so I frustrated the uh, inquisitors by only being able to speak Gaelic. I mean, they didn't entirely believe me, but I had to really work hard at doing it. And then I was whisked out. Everybody was gone. There was only me and a Turkish guy who had been the bully on the beach. 
Uh, and I was whisked into a taxi. Nobody said anything. I'm, I'm smelling like a homeless person. I'm looking pretty bad. And I was taken to the airport um, and put on a plane to London. Nobody spoke to me at this time. I, uh, nobody sat near me either. I would stay on the plane. <laughs> but but uh, I also was barefoot. Anyway, it's, um, I, I ended up in, in London and somebody picked me up from the airport and it turned out to be one of Mike Jeffries. So the word was, Mike never explained it to me, but he supposedly had MI5 connections or, or had had and was able to pull or, or his money in Spain was his position. He was able to uh, exercise and get me out. The band had already come to London and suddenly we were in a situation to uh, to be managed by Chaz and Mike Jeffries. And uh, I met Jimmy in a situation where I went for a meeting, a business meeting, to Chaz Chandler's uh, apartment uh, in the centre of London. And it had a glass door. So I'm ringing the bell and it doesn't seem to be ringing. And this figure came and opened the door. And... It was this. It was Jimi Hendrix, but I didn't know that. And he had his hair had about you know a hundred curlers in it. You know, it's like like a lady at the supermarket or something with <laughs> curlers in her hair. Uh, and he was wearing a very very short sarong type uh, outfit, which uh, did not cover all his uh, <laughs> his parts, so to speak. So I was very frustrated. I was very flustered. I didn't know who he was. I thought I'd been in the wrong apartment. I didn't know what was happening. And I said, Chaz Chandler, and he, he just pointed. He didn't say anything. And uh, I met uh, Chaz. And Chaz said, oh, I see you've met Jimmy. <laughs> so, so, so I just passed, you know, the great guitar biter, Hey Joe, who just surfaced on British television without knowing who he was, just thinking he was the nutter from next door. But... Uh, we had a great uh, we had a great meeting. Jimmy came in and looked great. He dressed uh, thing, and the big game at that point was a, a game called Risk, which was a world domination kind of board game. So Jimmy and I were one team against Chaz and his uh, new, very pretty Swedish wife. So that was my first connection. I'm with Jimmy Hendrix. I'm on his team now, and we won. So the Robinson Hendrix team. We got along very well. I, 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 I liked it, you know. I mean, how could you not? He was, a, he was a fa- already a famous person, very friendly, a bit shy, uh, but very good at risk, and, and he <laughs> instructed me in all the, in all the subtleties. So, so there I was, my first uh, meeting. I remember leaving and thinking, God, this is it. This could be it. This could be something. This is, where, this is what I've heard about. So we did a few uh, support bands for Jimmy in London. And then Chaz says, uh, about going to America? And it was like, you know, it was, it was talk about what you, what you wish for. That was the big one. So we went and toured. Earlier than that, I did a, a big thing in England where the big uh, package tours. And Jimmy had a spot because of the Hey Joe bit. He was the, he was the headliner. The Pink Floyd were under him, and then there was uh, the move, the nice, the people. Oh, we now had our name changed by Mike Jeffries and Chaz. We are now the heir apparent. So uh, E-I-R-E, as in the Irish bit. So <laughs> they, they weren't very happy. The band weren't happy with that. But uh, we, we did want to 
appeal to the new management team. And so they accepted it. They just thought, well, I'll never go back to Belfast was pretty much the attitude. Anyway, that aside, uh, we started touring. And so, you know, I, I noticed all kinds of things. I was kind of interested in the whole procedure. That was, that was my interest of how does this work? What happens? What will happen if the heir apparent now starts to get a bit of notoriety? What do I need to know? Who am I? What's it all about? And so it was fascinating. There was no criteria. It seems uh, them, uh, the Beatles, obviously, Herman's Hermits and the Animals were, were all the bands that had actually come from the UK to America at that time. So Jimmy and his two English uh, partners I got along very well with Noel Redding. And anyway, subsequently with Mitchell, I didn't. But Jimmy, Jimmy was fine. And... Here we are doing a very haphazard tour, which uh, involved um, zigzagging all over the country and uh, doing a lot of aeroplanes and various other things. And it was uh, fascinating to me because it seemed to be very badly planned. And I thought, once you get to the big time, and this is the big time in America touring with a big star, that um, it would be it, w- it would be very organised. It would be very organised, and the, and it wasn't. It, it seemed to me. Then the um, the tour manager got a gallbladder uh, problem, and had to go back to England. And so I became the tour manager. So I'd been the roadie. I'd been helping with the equipment as part of my job. So. I hadn't really paid that much attention to him. I've been interested in, um, you know, catching up with how it worked. But being given that kind of responsibility was large at the time. And uh, I was given a briefcase and a Beretta, much to my amazement, uh, and a license to carry it concealed. Uh, because the insurance in those days, it seemed uh, you couldn't collect big sums of money, which you were expected to from a promoter without uh, a gun. So I, you know, I never used it. I never looked at it. I put it in the bottom of the briefcase and forgot all about it. But uh, it was, uh, you know, it was heavy. Tour- touring America then was 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 a uh, you know, quite difficult situation. Let me remind folks that we're talking to, to Dave Robinson here. Uh, you managed Brinsley Schwartz, produced their early records. So in all the years of uh, road managing, there must just, you know, getting from A to B, getting paid, as, as you said, sometimes a struggle. There must be a million crazy stories. What's, you know, one insane story that happened? Uh, while I was the tour manager, the Vanilla Fudge, who had a track called You Keep Me Hanging On, were to join uh, the tour. This is the uh, Jimi Hendrix Aeropower and Soft Machine tour. And they were to join the tour, and I got a notice of that. We were out, I think, Jackson, Mississippi or somewhere, somewhere like, you know, the South, which is extra difficult and negotiating through that. So the Vanilla Fudge were to join the tour and I got the day and everything. But on that day, not, the gear didn't show up and the band didn't show up. So, I, you know, I, I, it wasn't important to me. Uh, I didn't even know the band. So I'm I'm... I'm working on the stage before the doors are going to open and I'm giving the the word to the promoter to open the doors. And I'm just looking at a bit of equipment uh, problem we're having when this um, slim gentleman uh, in a, in a mohair 
you know, shiny suit, comes up the hall with a, with a, uh, a very squat individual, a very, very tough-looking individual with him. And he comes up to the stage and he says to me, uh, I'm the manager of the Vanilla Fudge, so gear hasn't turned up, so we'll have to use yours. And I it said, fine, that's fine. I'll just have to check with the band. I mean, you know, it would have been normal, but I would check with the band. And the, the the squat guy at this point had come up on the stage and he ripped my shirt off, the front of my shirt. He kind of ripped it off. He, he pulled it so hard and so quickly that this T-shirt thing I was wearing ripped, the whole of it ripped. And as I looked down at it and I looked up again, there was this very big gun in my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, I said, you can... You know, in a, in a very mumble fashion, you can use anything you like. No problem, no problem. You know, <laughs> yes, you, you use the equipment. <laughs> so it turned, it turned out that he was a member of uh, a New Jersey kind of mafia family. And um, I stayed out of his way for the evening. The band turned up and used the equipment. I squared it all with uh, Jimmy and the boys, etc., and got all the stuff that they wanted. And they performed. So the following morning at breakfast, I see the two of them approaching again. I think, oh, my God, what's going to happen now? But the the guy, Philippe, his name was, he slipped uh, uh, an envelope under my plate and said, uh, you know, I might have overreacted last night. Look, I'm sorry about that, whatever. Uh, if you would, I have to go back to New Jersey on business. If <laughs> If you'd look after the band for me, I'd appreciate it. And they and they left. And in the in the uh, envelope, there was three thousand dollars. Now I I I was getting one hundred and fifty bucks a week, so this is fantastic. <laughs> I, I hadn't realized <laughs> and reali- realized my shirt was that valuable. But uh, so so that was one of the you know one of the many. I mean, I had to pay off police in several places where they were blackmailing. Us to, at the point of young girls, young underage girls, maybe in with as with band members and things, and and you know the jail is you you will be put inside for twenty years. It's kind of the kind of attitude. So uh, there were quite a few people with their hand out, and you had to skirt around this and take care. What what was amazing for me was the fact that a lot of people. Well, the promoters were very racist. I thought, I thought John F. Kennedy had sorted all this out, you know, <laughs> from Ireland. From Ireland, I, I thought, well, the Kennedys have come and they're really getting all this sorted. Uh, that that was not the case, and particularly the further south you went. But all a lot of the promoters, you know, there were some great ones, etc. But a lot of them were very racist, and they would talk to you in a very way as if you. Uh, you know, familiar way. They would talk in a very nasty way about the, the the clients and how they ran very clean shows and there'd be no X, Y, Z allowed at them. They seemed to ignore the fact that Jimmy was black himself, was, you know, and and that uh, there was, I don't remember seeing half a dozen black people at any of the shows. Hmm. You know? They, the didn't, they didn't come. He was a very much a white uh, item. And, and if he wasn't, the promoters were making sure that the audience were. 
I, I had to learn to keep my mouth shut. I'm, I'm a very talkative person, as you're probably finding. <laughs> I can talk, and I also object to racism in any... Having, having come from a country where racism has been going on for 600 years, uh, I, I resent all that kind of thing. But I had to... Mike Jeffries talked to me at one point. said, look, Dave, you look like as if you're going to talk on a few situations. You know, I would advise you to keep your mouth shut. You, you know, this is business and this is how it works in America. And you just need to go along with it. So, you know, if you feel uh, saying something, you know, go outside and shout at the sky. <laughs> but do not, do not mention, you know, you, you will be serious. So it was a great experience and helped me greatly when it came to running a record company. I had had this kind of quite broad, vast, varied experience, which uh, all came in handy. Yeah. Let me ask you about pub rock. Do you think uh, it's understood correctly in today's historical hindsight? Do people understand what it really was, and do they make too big a deal about it, or do they make not enough of a deal about it? There was a period where the music was a progressive bands playing 15 minutes in the key of E. You know what I mean? You had a lot of... Also, the major record companies loved the bands dressing up. You know, they, they, they loved it. They're, they're not any different to today. There's an analogy by um, Andrew Lou Goldham, who managed the Rolling Stones, where it's always pretty good. He said, if you have a can of beans, record executives would be interested in the can. You know, so so I I thought that was uh, pretty much where it was at. These people were not really pushed about the music, and I I I I became over the years interested in the artists. You no, know, not 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 just showing off about that, but uh, getting the group to their to the best uh, showing, get, getting them on the stage, well rehearsed, everything happening well. Very little. I hate uh, pauses and people going one, two into microphones. I just resent it. I think all that has to be got together in a rehearsal room and you know what you're doing and you and you make it work. So the pub rock was, these are a lot of bands who don't have any record deals. And there was a lot of four-piece bands who sprang up in the early part of the 70s Ace is a very good example, who happened to get one track away and make something of it, because they, they never found a second track. Yeah. But the other, the other bands, in a re reaction against this kind of crushed velvet, high heel boots, uh, orange haircut, which the majors really liked, because they could think, oh, this is entertainment. This is, you know, they... They loved that kind of carry-on. Really. They thought it was quicker and easier for the public to relate to something that was, you know, some of it good music, but a lot of it very phony carry-on. But they liked all that. And so the pub rock bands were bands that I, I because of handling Brinsley Shorts, I discovered, I, I wondered why we weren't playing more of London, for example, and why we wouldn't play... It's like the Beatles in Hamburg analogy and uh, the people in Mallorca is to have uh, pubs where a band could do two or three sets so they could, they could play uh, stuff they could write for it, but they could also play some covers that were interesting stuff, some blues, some early material. And a lot of that early material that they looked at were all short songs. So you're looking at no big guitar solos, 
short song. There was a band called Eggs Over Easy who came from Marin County to make a, a record in London and, and the money dried up. So they were stuck with no rent, no money. And they did what it seemed, everyone in Marin County would do. They, they went to the nearest pub and asked for their worst night. And I turned up pretty much after they got the worst night, eggs over easy. I, I heard this music coming from a pub that happened to be on my evening's uh, movement. And I went in to see them and I saw this band playing short three-minute songs, really good, really excellent, very exciting, uh, and as good as anything, as a small room and no people in it. And I started telling people about this band and it didn't take more than a month, and I got a very good audience for this group and got some more gigs. And so the Brinsleys did a lot of these, and they were all in pubs, because pubs, I mean, what does a publican want? He wants, he wants people in front of his bar, so, so he will take whatever music will do that for him. Prior to that, uh, a lot of the bands in England were kind of old, very old-fashioned, jazzy uh, bands and they'd have an audience of 30 people. I, I put people in and all these new bands that I was aware of because of the, the Brinsleys, because uh, we saw these bands around all the time. They didn't have any money. They didn't have a van. They didn't have those kind of facilities. And I booked them into the pubs and, and gradually took on more and more and more pubs. Uh, all Irish uh, landlords, so very keen. Yeah, if you're going to get people in, fine, we'll pay, blah, blah, blah. And so pub rock was a sneering aside from major company A&R men so at that time. So they came, and because there was a, a movement, there was a feeling that these bands were happening, these pubs were full, people were talking about going to three or four gigs in a night to see three or four bands. And the majors, of course, sent their scouts out there who came away saying, oh, it's only pub rock. And it was a put down. Mm. Now, if you look at Stiff Records, it was made up of pub rock. And so a whole different idea of the music being important and a certain style of the music and all those people that we look at or them or we admire or Louisiana turning up great records. Uh, I mean, there was, there was great music in America and these bands use that to write off and also to cover. And so you could, you could go out and have great music in a simple bar, drink a few pints, and this was what the major record companies uh, wrote off. They just said, ah, no, look at it, it's not, you know, the guy hasn't even got a good haircut, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> the transition from pub rock to punk, punk rock, I find that super interesting time. Was it something, I mean, was it like you just said, you were, you know, uh, pub, you know, Stiff Records had a lot of the same folks from the pub rock scene. Was was the idea just to continue that scene, or did you feel a change in the air? Was there, you know, something political oh, yeah. going on? Yeah. No, very definitely. The one thing that was there was the circuit now. There was a pub rock circuit. And so anyone who had a band could get in on the worst night and build their following. It's all residency. So you get public who come on a Thursday, they'd come the following Thursday and the following Thursday. So each band could build up a bit of a following in London without running up any big uh, bills. 
you know, you could take your drum kit in a taxi to the gig, you know, kind of thing. So punk filled the void as the pub rock bands moved on to Stiff uh, and big record companies then copied Stiff because they said, uh, what's happening? Who are Stiff signing? Well, let's get some of those. It's like the Beatles when, when the Beatles uh, hit. Everybody went up to Liverpool and signed a Liverpool band. Every Liverpool band got signed because <laughs> the record company, yeah, they don't they don't work it out. They've got a you know it's 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 a very transparent kind of carry on. I mean, I'm I'm very anti major record company. Yeah, uh, punks obviously came in at that point, so we're looking at seventy uh, six ish, uh, and and the Roxy in London is full of people, who, a lot of people who can't play, but are very enthusiastic and are following certain New York trends that they kind of like that other people have not noticed or whatever. So you have a lot of things, anyone can play. So it becomes a free for all. Anyone can play, anyone can get an instrument, anyone can look in the mirror and get themselves a bit of hair gel and look really <laughs> interesting. Uh, and so we have all these bands and then you have a guy called John Peel who came and had a, I don't know how he did it, but he got in the position at BBC Radio One, which was the nation's national station and it was under certain rules. But John Peel and John Walters, his producer, were allowed to do what they like. I don't know how they did it. And what they liked to do was play a lot of punk music. They played a lot of um, pop rock music to begin with, and then they moved into playing punk. Now suddenly you've got national radio playing it. Seymour Stein is coming over and signing punk band. You know, it's it snowballed. And, and like all musical movements, it's because of the circumstance, the band seemed to arrive and fill the hole, you know. Uh, I get the feeling that the press was very much on your side at Stiff, that that was sort of a part of the the success. Is that right? Well, there was five, uh, Michael, there was five uh, weekly newspapers, music newspapers, and they had to have a lot, you know, they had to have a lot of, there's journalists wandering around looking for stories yeah. for these five newspapers. And we were perfect. We were very aware of them. And we, we, we invented a lot of the stuff they wrote about. But also we had the bands that were a bit interesting. They're a bit cutting edge. They're a bit, you know, they, they looked and felt a bit different. So, you know, there was a bit of rock and roll mayhem. There was all the things going on. And you had a lot of journalists at that time who wrote in, in depth about a trip or a gig, or whatever else. I mean, England had a great thing, which is very handy for a manager. It's called Caught in the Act. So your your band could be in two of those papers, uh, and they somebody writing about two different venues that week, and two different shows. So press coverage had a very big part to play, yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, you started stiff with Jake Riviera, another sort of legendary character. How much money did it take to start the label? Where did the money come from? And tell me about uh, Jake Riviera as a, and you and how you, how you got along. Well, the money was, the money uh, from the point of view of Stiff was income, my, my income from managing Graham Parker and various other uh, uh, music at that time. And so my percentage from that 
was really what launched the label. There's a story that Dr. Feelgood, Lee Brillo, who I booked quite a, quite a bit. I also ran the Hope and Anchor pub as well at the time. So one of the pubs was the Hope and Anchor pub. And I had a studio. I built a studio in the pub. And I was recording quite a lot of people live. And so he gave us 400 pounds. But that was, that was, it was never used. I think we had to check on the wall in a glass case, you know, for <laughs> ages before. So it's a good, it's a good uh, rumor. Jake and I, Jake, Jake kind of copied me to a degree. I'm a little older than Jake, and I'd kind of been pushing more of the pub rock thing. And he had a band that was in the pub rock, and Chili Willie and the Red Hot Peppers. And so... I did package shows, and then he did package shows. So we were kind of aware of each other. We were both kind of quite competitive people. Uh, Jake was a very talented ad man. He was very good with a, with a good quote. Very um, uh, Lennon and McCartney, I used to think. We were, we were the poor man's Lennon and McCartney of management. So between us, we came up with some quite good stuff. And we both hated the majors. So... That five uh, weekly newspapers, for example, we we manipulated more. The journalists liked us. We we were snappier. We were younger. We were snappier. Our bands were a bit more noisier. And so, yes, we did we did get a, a lot of the press on our side. John Peel played the stuff from the beginning. He played "So It Goes" by Nick Lowe. And so Jake and I got on very well, and we had very good. Uh, you know, I had an office. I had telephones. I had a management. I had some income from the from managing uh, people. So Jake joined in on that. He then had the income and uh, you know the office and whatever. So we became a good part partnership. Um, Jake, I did describe Jake as a, a person who would burn the bridge while you were standing on it, and that was pretty much his persona. He was out there. He would take on anybody. Uh, whereas uh, some people would be cautious about a journalist or cautious about a situation, Jake would fly in the face. I, I would have to, from time to time, mm. clean up behind him a little bit. I'm a little more, a little older and a little more diplomatic, shall we say. Well, I'm sure that was helpful at some times, but also a liability at some times. Let me ask you this. If I were to ask, you know, Reckless Eric or Ian Dury, Elvis Costello, uh, you know, Dave Edmonds, whoever those people, what you were like back then, what would they tell me off the record? They would say, well... Uh, they all they all attribute sometimes far too much cleverness in in me that I didn't have. You know, <laughs> they, they, I think that's generally. But they they you know they know that I knew the records, that I knew the people, that I'd been on the road, that I knew how the thing worked, how the machinery worked. I knew I could pick the singles, I could promote, I could help them to get on, and you know, hopefully, I would get something out of it. You know, obviously, but so that's really, I think my reputation is as a marketing man. I mean, my best job was Legend by Bob Marley, but that's, I'm, I'm into finding the key to promoting the career of what I hope are great musicians. I mean, I'm a bit deaf now, 
And I tell people <laughs> I am deaf from listening to great music. <laughs> so let me, I, I'm going to hold you to, give me one minute or two minutes, nothing longer, because so many characters walked through the stiff door. So tell me one minute about each of these folks. Tell me about Barney Bubbles. Barney Bubbles was a genius. And he, he studied art like we study groups or music or whatever we're interested in. He studied art for those things, and he went back several centuries to look at stuff. He was uh, a bit of an acid casualty because mm. he had taken quite a lot of uh, psychedelics, and, but a lovely guy, and he wasn't into the, the money. He would forget to send invoices and things. He was always under some financial pressure because he hadn't been paid, but he hadn't asked people to pay him. Uh, he was... He was into the art completely, and he was a huge asset to Stiff Records. We would not be the label that we turned out to be without Barney. Yeah. Uh, tell me about Rachel Sweet. Rachel was a, an interesting thing. Uh, well, they all, they all have their merit. I went to, I heard Devo's Satisfaction. Somebody played me this record, and I thought, what the hell is that? That is extraordinary. Of all the kind of covers of satisfaction I could think of, that was the least likely. And I meet with the Devo people, and uh, I think Jerry Cassell is his name, the bass player. Uh, I think it's, it's uh, anyway. He he's a real breadhead. He he <laughs> he was talking to me about. I listened to a few of the, their their material. They four or five of them. Four came around to the, this motel. I mean, and it's a blizzard outside. So he's telling me that Virgin and Warner's, you know, he's trying to get them to, to auction, to get the price up, etc. So there's no way he's going to sign to Stiff, because I'm trying to sell Stiff to him, that we would be the right label for him. So we did a deal for money for the three singles, three singles. So we had six tracks, and we would get the rights to put them out until such time as he got a big record deal. So... While I'm there, uh, a few people have heard for some reason, I don't know what my reputation was, but a few people are phoning, and a gentleman called Liam Sternberg, who went on to write Walk Like an Egyptian, so you can see that boy had talent. He gets in touch and said, look, I, I know all the acts in Akron. If you're interested, you know, I could, I could show you how it all works. And one of them was Rachel Sweet. And she had two tracks of Liam Sternberg that uh, he had written, and she was singing. I thought, you know, she's 15. She had this really fresh, young girl voice of uh, Patsy Cline. Or, you know, you can think of several kind of very early, very young teenage voices. So I, so I wrote her, put her down, and then Jane Eyre and various other bands. So I, I, I got the idea of doing a, an album of Akron Unknowns because, to me, the, uh, the, tire, the tire capital of the world I found very fascinating. There was a big a smell of burnt rubber in the air. Even with the snow, was kind of dark. <laughs> so so I, was, I was a bit, uh, having got the Devo deal sorted, I, I was looking at what, so from that, it turned out that Rachel's uh, mom, unfortunately, had died, uh, had passed at that point. And her, her father, who was a, a bathroom salesman, was, was now acting as her manager because the family were trying to hang together. 
so I kind of uh, got Rachel and her dad uh, as a package. So I, we brought her over and put her on a package tour in England, and she was great. She was very, very straight girl, very, very under. She knew what she wanted. She knew to, how to do it. Fifteen, very, very young girl voice, and we had great success with her. And it was a lot of fun. Liam also came to work for Stiff eventually, mm. and the uh, the Devo tracks, of course, were were very successful, and people found them. You know, they were very interesting. I mean, the, oh, the, yeah. to give them the due, they were they were really off the wall. They were, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, were there surprises in the Stiff days of tracks you thought would be huge hits but didn't sell, and tracks the the other way that you just didn't have an expectation for but turned out to sell huge quantities? Well, I thought a record company made hits. I thought the job of the record company, it wasn't just to put out spaghetti on the wall and hope some of it clung. Mm. You know, my idea was pick a song by an artist who's signed to you, pick the right song, think about how it would work, you know, have a kind of instinct for it. And then, you know, it's like a great story of Herb Alpert at A&M. He, he was the A of A&M, obviously, and he, he was in the office. He had nothing to do because normally he was out on the road earning income that they were investing. So the sale, the, the, the marketing guy was in there and Herb wanted to find out how it all worked because it was going quite well. And he said, so how do, how do you do it? How, how, do you, how do you work it out? And the guy said, well, what we do is we look at the cost of a, an album and then we think how many we're going to sell, right? And then we take 7% of that money and we use it in marketing. And Herb said, uh, God, that's really interesting. Oh, it's a real science. It's really fantastic. He said, but what happens when it doesn't work? And the guy said, we spend what it takes. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how stiff ran. Mm-hmm. Right? Okay. I, I, I did not. I would pick the record and then I would make it happen. You know, I, I gave my record company away to Madness because there was a song called It Must Be Love that they did. That's a, that's a, a good story. They played it at a, at a rehearsal that I was at of theirs. So they played this track, a little bit of this track. The keyboard player was always playing the piano, Mike Barson. And they played this track. And I said, what, what, what track is that? What track is that? And he said, oh, it's a cover. We're not doing it because Madness didn't do covers at that point. Uh, we're not doing it. I said, no, 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 no. I said, you're not understanding. That's a really big hit. That's a, that's a seriously big international hit there. And he said, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we, we, we're not doing covers. You know? So I said, I really want to release that. Mike. And he, so he said, out of just frivolity, he's the kind of person he is, he said, well, what, what do you give me to release it? I don't want to release it. And I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll give you my record company. I'll give you a letter and you can have my entire record company and I will work for three years for you at my current salary if that record is not a big hit. And he said, okay, what's a big hit? And I said, top five. And it, the record went to four. <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard. I've never, that's a true story. Absolutely true. Yeah. 
I've never heard that one. Let's just backtrack for one second. At some point during the stiff years, you get approached by uh, Island Records to run that label. Now, you've just talked about how you just hate, it seems like, the the culture of major labels. This from day one. Were you able to bring that uh, that? aesthetic to running island and i know that island has a has a lot of ups and downs did you write it up or write it down well here's the here's the situation michael chris blackwell in the very early days of stiff had had distributed the label i i i learned about labels on i learned about pressing plastic i learned about printing record sleeves all those things were learned through my experience on whatever I was doing. Chris Blackwell, I approached somebody else in the label and Chris Blackwell, who I knew vaguely, said, yeah, I, I think it's a good idea that you're labeled Dave. Uh, we'll distribute it and we'll give you a good deal. And he did. So for a year, we uh, were distributed by Ireland in the very, very beginning. So it goes, the first 15 singles. And so... I, I I got very chummy with Chris Blackman, and but when I say chummy, I'm talking about we would have dinner three times a year, and I would tell him about what was happening in the British market because he was he floated around a great deal, America, Jamaica, you know, he was Bermuda, he was always somewhere else. So he hassled me to to run his label. He wanted he he it wasn't going very well at the. And I didn't want to do it. Stiff was doing very well. I had a couple of new bands that I that I was really interested in, and I said, "No, it's kind of you, Chris. Yeah, very flattering, but uh, no, I don't want to do it." And so he went on and on. About three times he came back to me, and eventually he came back and said, "Look, I'll buy half the company. You can decide how much it's worth." I'll buy half the shares in the company and you come and run Ireland and stiff together. So that was the point that, you know, I chatted over my wife and I thought, hmm, yes, how long, how long is the record label going to last? I like, uh, I like Ireland. And I didn't know any of the, uh, you know, Robert Palmer was a friend of mine. So I said, eventually, I said, okay, fine. You buy half of uh, Stiff, and I'll run the two together. I, I'll bring in some staff and stuff to cover whatever. So the very first board meeting, the 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 head guy of Ireland, England, the financial guy, says, "Okay, we've run out of money. Has anyone got any ideas?" And I was outraged. I could not believe that I had. I hadn't quite sold my office, whatever, but I, you know, Stiff had some money. We 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 would work very hard, and we had got somewhere. So I, you know, I, I talked to Chris. I said, Chris, what what's, what is this? You know, is this a joke? He said, No, we're, we're a bit short. A bit short. I said, Well, how come you didn't kind of bring this up when you were pitching to me as to whatever? How can I run a company where you've got no money? Uh, essentially, you know, in fact, I've now looked at the accounts and you, you're practically insolvent, you know, you're insolvent, but you're not allowed to run a company in the UK if you're insolvent. And he said, well, we've got, you know, we've got some material coming up, you know, that's quite good. So I listened to all the material and there wasn't a hit among us. 
There wasn't a one hit. I found one track that I thought would go on the British chart. It was, it was, a, it was a novelty song. Hello, John, got a new motor. That was the name of the song. Hello, John, got a new motor. And that was it. But I don't know. I, you know, I'm an, I'm an idiot from time to time, and I like a challenge, you know. And so I took it on. It turned out that he didn't even have the money to buy my shares. Uh-huh. I had to lend him the money so he could buy my shares at the price that we decided on. <laughs> so, so it was, it was foolishness. I mean, uh, you know, the hindsight, but that's we're all we're all good at the hindsight. He had a track, though. You see, I I always go for the music. I've always signed people because they're songwriters. I always think the songwriting is where it's at, and I always follow the music trail. And he had a track that Trevor Horace produced by Frankie Goes to Hollywood. That was bumbling around in the chart and not going anywhere. It's a 65. In the British chart, if you stay at 65 for two or three weeks, you're done for. So I thought this track could be different. Could we, you know? So I brought the stiff, I saw the stiff people and the stiff attitude to it. And we really worked very hard and we got very lucky. The BBC then banned it very publicly. And I kind of tricked the head of the BBC into taking part in a press conference and mentioning that he thought the song was being banned because it was all about ejaculation. And when he told me that, I said, you're out of your mind. This is the head of the BBC. I said, most of the chart songs are about ejaculation, Ted. Don't worry about it. So he stood up in front of a, a press conference, which I put together, I had 170 people listening to the BBC head saying this, right? I couldn't press enough records. People <laughs> were falling over themselves. I was pressing in Afghanistan. Do you know what I mean? It was ridiculous, <laughs> the demand. <laughs> and then I realized that you could, you could put out three different mixes with the same number. So mm. I could withdraw one lot. The same number, put another lot. I'm a marketing man at the end of the day, Michael. You know, I, I love the music and I love it, but also I be, you know, I, I'm interested in, in marketing. That's the job of the record company. I don't like the majors because they wait and see if the group can get off by themselves. They don't market them. And right now they sign people that have numbers on Spotify. I mean, I mean what kind of business is that? You know, how many fish in the sea? I'm interested in finding the 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 band that's really good and have no chance. Mm. <laughs> that's that's my kind of group. Anyway, Ireland were like that when I got through the financial figures. And Bob Marley had had unfortunately passed away, and I'm a I, I'm a Bob Marley fan. I like I love his music, and I I spent. Um, I spent a period. I spent a month in in the south of France, at a house that Chris Wright owned. Chris Wright is Chrysalis, right? So I'm at his house for a month in the south of France, and after a week, I'm really bored. I mean, the family are there and they're jumping in the swimming pool. It's all really good, but I'm bored at that point. And I went through his. He had his entire catalogue in in this room, vinyl. So I spent the next three days going through the entire Christmas catalogue. And there was very little I thought were any good at all. <laughs> Quite honestly, I thought it was all rubbish. And, but his wife is a huge Bob Marley fan, and she had the whole Bob Marley catalogue there. 
And from that, I, I kind of made a cassette for myself for the car. When I came back to England, I thought I'll have a great Bob Marley cassette in the car. So I pretty much made legend at that point uh, due to boredom. And so Frankie goes to Hollywood. I mean, selling like hotcakes. I think eventually that single did, you know, three or four million in the UK and Europe. Then legend becomes the labor of love and I look for the artwork. I thought Ireland always pushed Bob Marley too militant. I thought the public thought he was kind of, he didn't like white people or something, you know? And I thought that was incredibly bad because what a songwriter he was and what a visionary songwriter. So I, we did that, and we sold billions of that. I mean, it's, it's something like 38 million now at the moment. Yeah, yeah, and that, I would say, of all the reggae or all Jamaican music played today, like 60% of it is that one album. It's kind of, you've ruined it in some ways, you know? <laughs> yes, I, I think that's right. That's right. <laughs> Just to backtrack a second, so eventually Jake left Stiff with, I think, Nick and Elvis, and uh, had they had their thing, and you had your thing, including really that what, what we talked about before, the huge success of Madness. And I think they were really much bigger in the UK than they were in the US. They were really... Yeah, yes, they, yeah they didn't like to tour. Mm. And Sire, Sire Records had them in, in the States. Seymour had spotted them around the same time as me. I auditioned them at my wedding. <laughs> so my, my wife, my wife <laughs> doesn't entirely love them. Um, <laughs> so what? So, end, what was the end of Stiff Records? What was the the actual end the, for the, you? The, the end. The end was that Ireland didn't pay the bills. In order to amalgamate the two, come Stiff, Chris Blackwell sold me a bill of goods about about he wanted to sell the record companies to, you know, to a bigger company. And I would work for three years on the road. I would have a very big slice of the, uh, of the overall profit of the sale. I'd have half of Stiff, which would be very good, and I'd already had a little money out of it, so it was good. <clears throat> and he, he essentially double-crossed me, where um, uh, he... <laughs> Yeah, that, that, that was it. They didn't pay the the accounts department were were melted together, merged, and uh, and they weren't paying Stiff's bills. They were paying Ireland's bills. Ireland was making a lot of money. Ireland had the biggest year of its entire career in 1984. It was the first year I took it over and I worked it. And it didn't have anything though. It didn't have any upcoming artists. I wanted to get upcoming artists, because if we're going to sell it a couple of years down the road, you need to have upcoming business and upcoming artists. But Blackwell wanted to pick the artists, and he, he had lost his touch quite a, quite a bit. Anyway, I don't want to slag uh, Chris Blackwell off too much. He wrote a book, and he gave me a very nice uh, chapter in it, uh, which is good. But the bottom line is that he owes me about 12 million quid, and I'm <laughs> very unlikely to see that in the future. Wow. But uh, he, he's a he was a genius. He's also known as the baby-faced killer. Did you know that? Uh, I did not know that, no. Yeah, yeah. well, he, he is. He's a very charming, very handsome man in his prime, very good talker, very charming. He talked 
whatever. And I went along with him for quite for longer than I should. But that's the way. I you know I never proposed that I was a big businessman. It's not something I, I thought. Great music, a great record company. There's income in it, and you'll get some of it. Mm. I, I was never looking at the bottom line and querying it at any time. Not that I'm, you know, precious or a saint or anything. <laughs> I, you know, I would, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know what was happening in in my, you know, department. The same way Blackwell knew what he was selling me at the time. Mm. So I had to make it work, and I made it work. And then uh, his people, uh, you know, that was it. It's the baby says killer. So stiff found it hard to go back on the street and survive because it had a lot of creditors at that point. Mm. I'd signed the Pogues, for example, Pogues uh, at that time, and and they they became a very big band. I I never entirely lost the knack of finding uh, and marketing, but if you have a record company and you're the head of it, like Clive Davis does, your records did very well because you, you got your staff and your income and you put it behind a certain record to make it work. You know, the madness story is is to show that, that how far you would go to try and make a record work that you believed in. So do you still um, benefit from the assets of Stiff Records? No, I don't. No, it's owned. It's owned by uh, Trevor Horn's wife, Jill Sinclair, ended up uh, buying it for not a huge sum of money. And uh, I worked for a year and a half for her uh, running running the label. And um, at the very end of it, I gave I gave away to, you know, Madness got their catalogue back, Elvis Costello got his record back, The Damned got their stuff back, Ian Dury got their stuff back. So everybody who was big on the label ended up owning what it is that the label has had. So what's left of the catalogue, um, Trevor Horn, uh, the producer, he sold it along with everything that he owned, perfect songs and very to Universal for a huge sum of money which I didn't get, and I don't share it. Hmm, interesting. Uh, so since those days, you've, you've, you've done a million things. You've uh, represented labels out there. You've helped move acid, jazz, and drum and bass, get started in the UK. You've done a lot of consulting. And I also read that you did a lot of horse breeding. And when I read you did a lot of horse breeding, I think, well, that's not something poor people do. So without getting too personal, I, you know, through all the ups and downs, I guess you've done very well. Is that fair? Well, I've done okay, Michael. I'm not, not <laughs> complaining about it. It's, uh, you've done it's, okay. Uh, I, yeah, I still do stuff. I go out on the road occasionally and do one-man show, which is, uh, you know, there's a few people talking about making, big, that, making that a bigger thing. There's a bit of uh, interest. Uh, so okay is the answer, really. I mean, I'm I'm a certain age now, and uh, I'm still going, and I'm still keen, and I'm still wanting to do stuff, and I still know what a hit record is, and I I do lots and lots of bits of projects and stuff. I've done a lot of uh, greatest hits for other record labels, hmm. and I've ne- got some ro- royalties from those. 
I see that you're involved with this new, brand new band called Hardwick Circus, who's about to release their yeah. their yeah. second album. And I assume that the reason you are involved in this band is because you are feeling magic from them. I assume it's not a, a financial. I assume that's very low on your considerations of why you are working with this band. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. I, I'm I'm uh, trying to help the band to realize its potential. You know, at the very end of any of those things, there is some income for me. You know, if, mm. if they realize the potential, there is a there is a contract and, and I will get paid. Uh, nothing excessive. But again, that's that's what it's about. I'm very interested in music. I'm very interested still in the chemistry of music. I still dislike the major record companies that I've disliked all my life. Uh, they're a great mm. motivation. They motivate me every day. And uh, and it's a, it's exciting business, and you have to keep going at the end of the day to to for yourself. I mean, what I have friends who've retired and passed away almost, you know, immediately. It's you know, you hope to go out with a bang <laughs> if you're going to go, which you are. Um, and so this is a very good band, and I've, I've led them along the road to how to do it, how to write it, how to be it. And I think uh, everyone has seen them. I mean, last night, remarkably, everyone has seen them goes, how did that happen? And I'm thinking, that's how stiff happened. That's how everything that's good happens, is that you get behind it. You put your shoulders to the wheel and you get behind it. But you, you can only do that if they want you to. That, that's the thing. You can, it's only it's only when people want you want to get there and are prepared to to move to do it and to struggle and strive and work that it that it can happen. So I only take on people who are driven like me a bit, you know. Gotcha. Uh, so at the end of the day, what is your biggest gift? Uh, my mouth. I. <laughs> 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 um, uh, you know, I I don't take no for an answer. I'm very persevering. I don't give up anything. If 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 there's a re, I try and find stuff that's timeless. I try and I try I I think a lot of stiff material. I believe, but that could be just me. Um, a lot of it sounds really good. It was made on a tiny budget, but the songs were good, and we tried to make. You know the old killer, no filler attitude. That's that's me. I mm. I think all albums should be a greatest hit, all of them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I the, the the idea that you've got a one track and then the, uh, it's cobbled together to make a, a release or whatever. I deplore that kind of attitude. You, it, it's what else have you got? You've got three great songs here. Can you write more? Is this a fluke? Is this something that just happen to you or can you steady up now and write and get down and find some really interesting things that appeal to you and write about them you know i i i think all music is kind of folk music it's all about the locale the beatles were folk music from liverpool uh or the and they incorporated the world to a degree i like i like people writing madness write about camden town as you say they didn't do anything in America, although they had one hit. Um, I think it was Our House. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But because Seymour, he's great. Seymour passed on very, very recently. Uh, I loved him. He was great fun. 
But he was a, an American record executive, and that was his kind of interest. But he liked music, and he liked finding new acts and things. It's it's a great business. I mean, the this is a business we're we're talking about it now, and uh, how amazing is that? You know. Yeah. Uh, well, it's an amazing story, and uh, I'm uh, just great stories. So thanks for visiting with us. Just so much fun this morning. Great, Michael. Thank you very much. Cheers, Michael. All the best. Sex and drugs and rock and roll Is all my brain and body need Sex and drugs and rock and roll Silly ways, or throw them out the window. The wisdom of your ways, I've been there and I know lots of other ways. What a jolly bad show! If all you ever do is business you don't like, sex and drugs and rock and roll, sex and drugs and rock and roll. Sex and drugs and rock and roll is very good indeed. Every bit of clothing ought to make you pretty. You can cut the clothing, grey is such a pity. I should wear the clothing of Mr. Walter Mitty. See my tailor, he's called Simon. I know it's going to fit. You're quite welcome, it is free Don't do nothing, that is cutlass You know what they'll make you be They will try their tricky device Trap you with the ordinary Get your teeth into a small slice The cake of liberty And drugs and rock and roll. Sex and drugs and rock and roll. Sex and drugs and rock and roll.